0: This week, the obvious question is, if we have nothing to live for, do we die? I'm Mike Trevisado, and on this episode, Bob Meyer asks Joe Bertalek and myself, if the most important things in our lives disappear, do we also disappear?
1: So guys, as you know, our podcast has gone live, and uh, that was a monumental step, I I think, for all of us, and, and really exciting. And I always think about passion and energy, and like that was something that we put a lot of energy around. And, and me personally, and that excitement about when it goes live. But then that moment it goes live, you're thinking about well, what's next? And as I was traveling earlier this week, you know, I was kind of doing a little bit of journaling, and I was thinking about passion, and and um, also read some articles. Um, an interesting thing about someone that had passed away—a a husband and wife. That passed away within hours of each other, and um, was thinking about kind of like the will to live and I was saying about the question, if we have nothing to live for, do we die
0: yes i think I think we do it's a good it's a good question if we have nothing to live for, do we die I, yes, I think so i mean if if I think of uh Extreme scenarios like somebody doing something uh, and uh, where they're stressed, like you hear prisoners of war stories or people trapped in the middle of the wilderness or something. And, and they think back and what keeps them alive, you hear it over and over again, is is this thought of the people that they're living for, their family or someone that they love. Right. And I, But if I take it even to something really mundane, you know, like, if I have nothing in nothing in my life that I feel connected to, you know, people around me, again, people that, that I love or that I know love me, then I think I think I do. I think I die. I don't know if that means I physically die, or maybe it takes a, lot, a while for that to happen, but I know that I fizzle away, mm. I think.
2: Yeah, and Bob, when I, when I first heard that, I thought to myself, do I die? Like, would it, it just happen? or would I want to die, you know, would I, would I purposely do something like to hurt myself or to kill myself that way, suicide. Um, and you hear that story, you know, the guy had nothing to live for, um, and that's the end of it. There's a book um, from years ago, I think it was called Man's Search for Meaning, uh, Viktor Frankl, and he wrote about the, the, uh, the internment of, of Jewish people during the, uh, the Holocaust. And, and his, his challenge in looking at it was to, to figure out, in some ways, who survived and why. And he had a whole set of theories about that, you know, the, um, give away the book, whatever, it's a really good book. Um, but I, I think to myself that the the idea of, of not having anything to live for, well, the, another thought is, what am I living for? So that, let me see if I'm on track, you know, if I've got something worth living for. And then... If you have nothing, does that mean like nothing or no thing? Is it more related to relationships as opposed to things? I mean, it gets confusing very quickly as to say, what does that mean, nothing to live for? Because I hear people say that, um, and I, I shouldn't say I hear it that way. Occasionally, someone will say, you know, with everything that's happened, I have no reason to live. Or, And I think I think they mean it, but they, I don't think they really mean it in the sense that there really is nothing. I think that something's happened, a traumatic issue of some sort has occurred, and they see that as their focal point, and now with that focal point gone, they don't realize that there's so much more around them going on um, that's, that's worth living for. And if you ask yourself the question, what are you living for in the first place? You know, I heard a quote on um, NPR, I think it was sometime last week, where I only heard the end of the show, but the person said, "You know, it's interesting to have a living, you know, to make a living, but what is it to make a life? And the show kind of ended with that. I don't remember what the topic was. They did announce it. But uh, a living versus a life. So right away, I'm into this this deeper thought process of what is it to have a life? And what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to, you know, I don't know, just crazy things like hermits. You know, what does a hermit do? What does a monk do that sits, you know, quietly and prays all day? Is that, you know, they they I guess they have a lot to live for in that sense. But there's something uh, really deep into that question that says, you know what happens if I truly could give have all that happen in a sense give all those desires those needs those wants the reasons to live have them disappear what would happen uh, I don't know
1: yeah yeah that's a lot I mean I, I one of the things that hit me about the question was I saw an article recently this week about Doug Flutie the the quarterback played in the CFL he also played in the NFL. But it was about his parents who, I think they were married for 57 years. And earlier in the week, his dad died of a heart attack. And and the story indicated that the mother passed away, um, I, I, I suppose, of a heart attack as well, just an hour after he did. And I was like, wow. It's like, you know, and that's what hit me, like, was everything that, you know, she lived for, was wrapped up in the 57 years with her husband. And and sure, I'm, I'm sure it just didn't happen that way, and it doesn't always happen that way, but that story kind of touched me like, wow. It's like, because that is one of the things I think a lot of people are really passionate about. It, it might be you're driven because you want to accomplish something, but I think a lot of us are driven with, you know, our families, the people that we love and, and the people that we're really close to, that um, especially kind of like um, at this moment, I think, when what's happening across the world with you know, a lot of the terrorist activities and 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 whatnot that pe- people use that as a rallying point? Like, okay, you know, we're we're connected. You know, the people that are on the other side of this that you know, there there's something that people are you know, that passion could be anger, and uh, that fuels us to to move on and and to do something different to want to make a difference.
2: Yeah, and Bob, you know, as you said that, I'm thinking I, I have heard that story from a number of different sources, not Doug Flutie necessarily, but, you know, one spouse dies, they've been together for 50 years, very shortly after the other one dies, and they kind of write it up in the paper, the way you're describing it, like, they had nothing more to live for, their, their soulmate was gone, but you know, as I think about that, I think that can't be true, I mean, it can't, it's true for them, obviously, when they say it, but it's it's not true for me in the sense, there's nothing else to live for, they, they may have children, they may have friends, they may have a community, certainly there's people out there they could help, you know, I, I think, their direction that at that moment, that there's something about whatever that event was, the way it happened with that person, that makes them give up the desire to live, perhaps, or the the will to live. But the idea that there's no reason to live, or there's you know that it would di- you disappear because you don't have a a reason outside of that person, seems to me to be very small, very narrow. And I know it happens. I mean, I read about it. I, and you're d- describing here a situation with uh, Doug Paludi's parents that. I'm sure it's true but the, there's something missing for me there that says and I remember with my own parents that my mom and my dad passed away and my mom passed away 3 years later and I think her emotion when she when she got to that point where she realized he was gone I think she kind of drew you know drew herself within and kind of felt that that missing piece but but I think it took her about a second to look around and say you know what about her kids and grandchildren and uh, the church and the people she knew from you know, the community and all that. And all of a sudden she had a different take on it. So you could say, well, if you got narrow enough in your view and you said, I'm, I'm banking everything on this person, you know, and if this person goes, I'm going I could see where that could happen for a person where they would be very narrow. And in my, my description of narrow would be that there's a much bigger world around them. They're just not noticing it. They're not seeing their part in it. And so they get narrow and think, well, now what have I got to live for? You know, I think a person could say that about their job. You know, I, I've had a job for 20 years, 30 years, and I got let go. And they might even say, I've got nothing to live for now, which I think is, it may be true for them in the moment, but it certainly isn't true for me in terms of the big picture of the world. So I think there's something there that uh, I I put on the person. And and even when you're in a good mood, I mean, look how people describe their lives. Some people describe their lives very big, others very narrow. You know, we're all in the same place in the same world, the same possibilities, I guess, in that sense. And I think we tend to narrow them ourselves, like in that situation.
0: Yeah, you know, I think, I think of, uh, I've, I've spoken to you guys about her so many times. My, my piano, my piano teacher, my piano coach, Julia Benfer, uh, who, who, as you know, passed away at the, at the age of 99. I started taking lessons with her when she was 86 and, you know, the kinds of lessons that I was taking weren't exactly learning scales. I mean, it was interpretation and it was, uh, sort of heavier, heavier end stuff, uh, but when I think of her and I think of about her longevity and I think about the kinds of things that she did in her life, it fits into this question really well. Because one thing that I noticed, I couldn't help but notice, and I couldn't help but wonder, geez, is that why she lives so vibrantly, you know, into such a ripe age, a ripe old age? She always had a list of things going, of things that she needed to do, and they were some big you know some small they something like you know i want to finish writing a, a technical manual on the touches of the piano hard touch soft touch you know sort of uh i want to uh, finish converting all of those old reel to reel tapes that i did with rca uh victor i want to i want to convert them to cd I want to and and once i do that i i'm done i can just relax Uh, I want to clean out all of that music and I want to give it to my students. She had just this list of of things and every one of them, it was like, as soon as I finish that, then ah, I can just relax. But the trick I couldn't help but notice is the moment she would finish one of those things, another one would pop up. Like, you know, her list never got less than like seven or eight things. And I thought, man, she's just constantly doing something. She constantly has something she just wants to do. And they all had to do with Giving of herself, you know, giving her music, making sure people had something that she wanted to tell them, making sure she had it written down so that, you know, she'd say, Michael, I'm not I'm not going to be here forever, you know, and, you know, and she and she and and next, thing you know, she would she would have something she wanted to do. So all her students had had something for her. I think that I can't help but think that that greatly contributed to her her wanting to be alive and, and live in the ninety nine. I'm sure of it.
1: Yeah, I think I think there's a linkage there with that that passion, that energy, and it could be different for different people. You know, for me, it's that next goal, that next project, that thing that I'm really excited about. Whether that's a podcast or writing a story, doing a piece of music, just a video project, whatever that is. It's that next thing. So I think I was I was suffering on the plane in that lull where it's like, okay, this went live. Now what? But the good news is it's like, hey, it's live every week. So I have something to look forward to. Um, but back to that question, you know, if we have nothing, it's like, what's the thing part of that? Um, it doesn't always have to be a thing. I think some of it could be our thoughts. Um, going back to the news and, and different stories that I've read, there was um, – you guys have probably heard stories of people that suffer from kind of what's called like a locked-in syndrome, where you know the body is basically you, you really can't have any control of your muscles, you can't move at all, but your brain is still functioning fine. In many cases, uh, the person can hear, can see fine, and um, uh, you know I, I read a story about a, um, a gentleman or a dad who had this locked-in syndrome, and it was a story about the daughter and how she could communicate through him, you know, kind of with blinkings of eyes and things of that nature. And, um, you know, basically he said that it, it was, it was wonderful. Like it wasn't what she might expect, like, Oh my God, my dad's here. He can't see anything. Uh, I mean, he can't, he can see, but he can't actually do anything or say anything. Uh, but from his perspective, it was like, he was at peace with himself, he had his thoughts, he had his imagination. Um, So, you know, point being that it might not have to be that something, it could be a person being relatively still, but still have some desire to to carry on.
2: Yeah, you know, but there was a study done years ago, what Mike mentioned here a minute ago about, about Julia, and what you're talking about, there was a study done years ago, and they were trying to figure out why people survived, you know, more so than other people. And they, they eliminated certain illnesses and stuff. They tried to make it so that they were looking for the factor, the factor that carried people forward. And the, the one thing they found to be true was that the people who, who lived, the people who lived longer, had the idea that they would be alive the next year. In other words, in interviews and stuff like that, they had a very positive outlook on their life. And like Julia, Mike, you would say, she's got so much stuff to do. She knows she's going to be around next year because she's got to get it all done. You know she has to accomplish it, and what they found was that the people who survived were the ones who honestly thought, "Well, I'm going to be here next year," and so there is that. I guess if you, I don't know if you call it passion or just the inner working knowledge that, "Hey, I'm not gone." Whereas you know you, you probably have that image of a an older person, older man or a woman, you know, sitting there going, "Well, it's over for me." I, you know, I, I'm I'm just so sick, or you know, they're just kind of, and you go, "Oh, come on, you know, mom or dad, you know, come on." You're not, you're not going anywhere and it's, oh, I don't think I have long. And, uh, and some of those people, I think they do maybe do it for the drama of it. But I think there's that other piece that if you do it for real, I think your body gets it after a while. The physical part of you starts to whatever break down or whatever that word would be to the point where if you don't think you're going to be around next year, you're probably putting yourself in that place. you know. And from a mental to a physical position, there's no thing involved. It's just your thoughts about whether you'll be here or not. But I think that that study—I don't recall. It's great. We're not a—we're not really the guys to, you know, to be authentic, not authentic. To be, uh, to be, um, saying from a technical standpoint how things work. But I just remember the the result of this study, and they said it's just that people, people who believe they'll be around next year tend to do better than people who don't. You know, as simplistic as that is. So there, there's something to that. I mean, I, and I—I I don't know Julia personally, but I remember Mike. You talked quite a about, bit about her, and and she seems like she had that kind of vibrancy or that. You know, just that idea that, hey, I'm not going anywhere, I've got stuff to do. And people I know like that that have been around for a long time, it seems like they carry themselves from one year to the next. And they get sick and they have all the problems everybody else has, but somehow they overcome it. Whereas yeah. again, I have that image of that person who doesn't, who just goes, Oh, poor me, I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna be around. You know, that type of thing.
0: The other thing about about Julia that I I couldn't help but notice is that she never seemed to know. Uh, everything, hundred percent. She never stopped learning. I guess is the easiest way to say it. She never ever stopped learning. She she always seemed to leave room f- to be wrong about something, to change her mind about something. So she she while well, she was super confident and super opinionated, and she could be stubborn, she could always be convinced of something else. And I think that 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 was not a small thing. It was she she learned. She I remember sitting at the piano with her. Looking at a piece of music together, some Debussy thing or something, and she and she just kind of, oh, oh my word! That I've been thinking about this part here all wrong for fifty years or something, and uh, and and she laughed real hard. And I remember thinking, man, she's. It, it wasn't that she was thinking uh, that she had made a mistake. It was that the way she was thinking about the music, the interpretation, she didn't. She realized. I'm not right about that. It should be something else. If I want to bring this something spirit out in this piece of music, I need to think about it a different way. She was able to take 50 years of thought and just throw it away and bring a new one in. And I thought, man, that, I don't know anybody like that. I mean, who can just abandon, you know, something that they have thought for that many years and just switch uh, at the, at the snap of something uh, of fingers onto, onto something else. I think I think that had a lot to do with with how she was as well. I think, or or how long she lived, or the kind of life she had.
1: Oh, well, that's great, Mike. I I think we've really scratched the surface here in terms of you know what is it that uh that that passion, that energy that keeps us alive. Um, and I, there's probably plenty of other thoughts out there as well. But I really like that point about never stop learning. And and from a podcast perspective, it's never stop asking those obvious questions. So we would like to take a pause here Just say, you know, check us out at theobviousquestion.wordpress.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts in terms of your answer to this question or, you know, how do you feel about the question itself? Um, Drop us a review. Check us out on iTunes. Uh, And share it with your friends if you're really in in tune with what the message we're delivering. We'd love to hear from you. Again, that's obviousquestion.wordpress.com.